We would like to advise that the following program may contain adult themes, occasional nudity, and language that may offend some listeners. I'm Richard Glover, and this week a TGIF special ahead of TGIF's return next week with James O'Loughlin, Gene Kitson, and Kitty Flanagan. This week, three of my favourite interviews of comedians talking about their craft, their ideas, and their jokes. Coming up, Sarah Millican, Bill Bailey, but let's start with the great David Bedil. I wonder if you reckon you had weird parents. You might. Have trouble competing, though, with David Bedil, the British comedian, novelist and TV presenter. He paints a vivid portrait of his mum and dad in an acclaimed new stage show by turns moving and hilarious called My Family, Not the Sitcom. David Bedil is here. Good afternoon. Hello, Richard. How are you doing? Good. All the... I've read a lot of the UK reviews and they all somehow say the same thing, which is the candour... Is amazing. Mm. Yeah. The primary uh, way that the show was instigated was my mum died in 2014. I was at her funeral because I went, you know, felt that was fair enough. And while I was there, the thing happened that happens at funerals to a close family mourner, which is a lot of people started coming up to me and telling me that my mother was wonderful. And the thing that bound all these people together was they didn't really know her. I thought, who are you? You're telling me that my mum was wonderful. And what I realised was, this is what happens when people die, is their actual personality gets kind of erased out of existence, because people just want to say nice stuff about them. And the trouble with that is that nice stuff, anyone can say, anyone was wonderful. What you want to say is specific stuff, and that will always, with anyone's life, involve stuff that isn't said at funerals. Mm. So with my mum, one of the primary things about her was that she had a very, very big, dramatic and pretty public affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman halfway through (laughs) her life that led to her becoming obsessed with golf. I mean, not just, like, watching it. She wrote five books about golfing memorabilia. She became a huge figure in the golfing memorabilia world. She opened a shop selling golfing memorabilia and... At all this time, this was a woman who had never heard the word golf up to this point. David, how attractive was this man? Well, clearly quite attractive because David, which is the name of this guy in question, he was also called David, which is complicated for me in lots of ways. I was 12 when this happened. Uh, he, I show lots of pictures of it in my show. My show is very audiovisual. So I have a screen and I show lots of pictures. I read out my mother's erotic poetry about this guy, which, by the way, includes stuff about golf. She kind of eroticizes golf as part of the poetry. And at the end of the show, I sometimes say to the audience, is there anything you want to ask me? And they always want to ask me, and it's practically always a woman is David still around? And I think that's because he's quite sexy. I think they want to ask, is he on Tinder? That's what they want to ask. Um, your, your mother's gone, is he available? Is, is, is he, clearly he's available. Uh, and I give some information about that, but not too much, because he is, I think, in his 80s now. But um, the point about memory is that um, I think you bury someone for a second time if you just say the nice stuff about them. What happens when I talk about my mum in this way is she genuinely kind of comes to life again and people come up to me afterwards and say, I really feel like I knew your mum and then tell me stuff about their family. Mm -hmm. And so the other part of the show, most of it is about my mum, but quite a lot of it's also about my dad and my dad has dementia. And that part of the show is kind of about, okay, here's this guy who can't remember anything and yet 
he still remains entirely himself because my dad has a type of dementia called Pick's disease and this part of dementia is not so talked about, which is the behavioural part of it. And so Pick's disease is a dementia, where frontal lobe dementia, and the symptoms include uh, rudeness, swearing, obscenity, like mood swings and apathy. And I remember saying to the neurologist when he told me this list of symptoms, has he got a disease or have you just met him? Because my dad was always exactly like that. And so I build a comedy around the fact that my dad has turned into this kind of ten times caricature of himself. You know, he seemed to have a disease called Colin Baddiel's disease. And I think that by the end of the show, this creates a very, very vivid reality about who my parents are. And the interesting thing about that is in terms of, because you were talking to me before about, you know, the fact that you've had this very interesting experience with after your mum died, finding out what, what she was really like, is that I speak incredibly truthfully and specifically about who my parents were. And there's lots of hilarity and comedy in that. But in so doing, that seems to touch people who have had a completely different experience because everyone's as you can express, Mm -hmm. had something weird and complicated and idiosyncratic in their childhood. I think especially people of our age, Richard, if I might say. No, no, I think that, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I, when I talk about my book, I often say to people, who in this room felt that they got the love from their parents that they would want to give to a child of their own? It's very interesting, you know. Yeah. And, and the image we all have of parenting is that everyone will put their hand up to that. Of course they did. But actually half the room does. No, well, Only half that, the room well, does. Well, I think the truth is that parenting, which is a word that didn't exist when my parents were parenting, is something that happened fairly recently. I mean, I've got kids now who are 17 and 13. And, you know, I am from a generation that parented them. But my parents, they did not stop their lives for me or for my brother. That just didn't happen in the 70s. My mum was having an affair. She had kids. She carried on having the affair. Why should she stop? My dad swore every day, like a 100 times. Why would he stop? Because he's got kids. I... I was grown up. I was taught by my dad to swear all the time. And actually, I didn't swear in front of my kids because I come from this diff- different generation mm-hmm. that thinks I change who I am when I have kids. But my parents, they didn't do that. No, that's right. Absolutely right. I mean, the thing about honouring your mother in that way is why would she be this kindly, somewhat bland yeah. person of the funeral given what had happened to her when she was a little child? Well, that's true. I mean, that's... But that's a key thing with the show. I think one of the reasons the show is moving... I mean, the show is primarily funny, I should say. But people are moved by the show. And there are moments in it still, having done it a lot in Britain, where I feel like, oh, I'm going to cry. And one of the times I really feel that, without giving too much away, is my mum was a Holocaust, was a refugee from the Holocaust, when she was a baby. I mean, her parents were the real refugees. But they got out in 1939 and brought her to Britain. And uh, she had a different name then, because uh, I talk about this a lot. She was given a name by the Nazis forced Jewish children to choose names from a list of names, and all the, all of these names are really ugly. Like so, her real name is from it, uh, real I say. But uh, but my mum was called Sarah. She never used the name from it. And uh, one of the things that I do in the show is sort of prove that even though my mum, in kind of a, quite a restricted way, because she was just a lower middle class woman who grew up in a suburb of London, or whatever, she lived a very out there life. And I think that's because her life nearly didn't happen at all. This is someone who nearly had no life. And so with the best things, best tools available to her in the 70s in northwest London, she went out there and she did crazy stuff. And I think that's kind of inspiring. Mm. It's exuberance, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and refusing to believe the person that, I don't know, the world is conspiring to make you. Yeah, no, exactly. It's exactly that, yeah. yeah. And actually, in terms of this bringing back to life thing, uh, 
I, both my brothers, I have an older brother and a younger brother, they were both quite anti me doing the show. And uh, my younger brother, who is a cab driver in New York, and I talk about this quite a lot in the show, he's in the show uh, on the screen or whatever, um, he is not someone to be messed with, I mean physically. And uh, he wrote me a message, a one-line email, when I, when I put out the information that I was doing this show, just saying, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And I said, Dan, just like, you, I can't explain it, but I know this will be a celebration. I know it sounds like I'm going to talk about her affair, I'm going to talk about my dad's dementia, I'm going to talk about all this stuff. I'm going to read her sex poetry. I'm going to read her sex poetry. <laughs> I know it sounds bad, but it's going to be a celebration. And you kind of have to see it and trust me to do that. And my older brother, who was also really not sure came to the opening night in uh, London, in a theatre in London. At that point, it was just in a small theatre in London. And after, after the show, I come out for, for there's an encore. And uh, at that point, I did, did a Q&A. And a lot of people had their hands up. And I could see people in the audience who were important. It's the opening night. There's the Guardian theatre critic over here. And there's a guy from BBC One over there with their hands up. And I said, you know what? Alienating them at a stroke. I don't want to answer any of your questions yet. I just have to know what my older brother thought. And I said, Ivor, that's his name. What, you, what did you think? And he said, I loved it. And then he said, I loved it because it felt like she was in the room. And that did make me cry on stage because I did think that's what I'm doing here, isn't it? I am making her properly come to life. Well, yeah, you mentioned the Guardian theatre critic, and he actually mentions this in the review that he's sitting next to Ivor. Yeah. And I, I can't remember whether it's at the end or the middle, the interval, but. Ivor turns to him and says, it's all true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad that I I didn't pay Ivor to do that. I'm glad he did that. But actually, Michael Billington, who is the Guardian uh, theatre critic, said, described the show as a twisted love letter to my parents. And and a lot of people have said to me, oh, you say it's that. I said, no, no, it was him. And it's right. It's one of the rightest things that have been said about the show. Because the show, I didn't set out to do that. I just thought, I'm going to tell this story. And as it goes on, you realise that there is something loving going on here. And most people who grew up, as I say, in the 70s, did not have a straightforward, loving relationship with their parents. My dad, to use another example, my dad, I did a documentary about my dad's dementia, on, which was on Channel 4 in Britain. And um, I don't know, what the, what's the language limit on this show? Well, I think you... Am I allowed to use a, a common Anglo-Saxon word for testicles? Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. That passes so, muster. Okay, that passes muster. So, in that, in that documentary, right at the it's end... It's just, I've heard your mate Frank Skinner. Yeah, well... And he uses words we can't use here. No, well, and so do I in the show. I'm afraid you'll, when you come to the show, you'll see I'm being unbelievably discreet by asking that question. It's not normal for me, but I'm, I know I'm on live radio in a country that is not my own country, so I'm trying to... But it is Australia, to be fair. Yeah, yeah I know, exactly. I know yeah. Australia's yeah. generally a fine with stuff like that. But, but anyway, the trouble is, if I'm to list the three words you can't say, then I would be in trouble for listing no, the three words you can't do, say. Don't do that. I don't want to get you sacked, Richard. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm on this documentary, which was about my dad's dementia. At the end of it, the director says to me, did your dad ever tell you that he loved you? And my dad's a very male, blokey man. And I said, no, no, of course, he never said anything like that. And, and the director says, why, do you, why didn't he? And I said, as a joke, I said, well, he probably didn't love us, in other words. And, uh, and the director then turns the camera on my dad and says, your son is saying that you never loved him. And my dad says, that's bollocks, mm. right? Mm. And I found that moment almost incredibly beautiful because I thought, you know what this is? This is my dad on camera telling me he loves me in the only way he was ever going to do that. <laughs> and I'm not going to repeat the words in case they were unacceptable to anyone out there, but the fact that he did, that's so my dad, that he would never be able to say, I love you, but he would be able to say on hearing that I don't, he didn't love me, that's bollocks. I'm sorry I've said it again. <laughs> David Badil is, is here. Your, your father's dementia developed before your mother died in 2014. Yes. yes. There's presumably a moment you have to tell him, is there? 
Yes. Now, that's a very interesting thing you've said there, Richard, because people sometimes say to me, is there anything you don't cover in the show? Because the show is very, very all warts, whatever the word is, everything's out there. It's washing a dirty laundry in a very public way. And I would never not do something because I was worried about taste or decency or anything like that. But I would do something if I really thought there was no proper comedy in there. And so I'm going to talk about this moment, but it was very, very grim indeed, which was when my mum died, uh, me and my brother were at the hospital and it had been a terrible day and awful. And then we had to go to my dad, who was at home, but, you know, on his own. We'd had to leave him there, we, you know, because my mum was his primary carer, and tell him. And so he told my dad that this had happened. And my parents always had a very complicated relationship anyway, but he was very shocked and upset and I'd sort of never seen him so vulnerable and, and whatever. So that goes on for about 20 minutes, the telling him. Then there's a sort of gap. And then he says, so how's the mother? Mm. And then we realise we have to tell him again. Mm. And then we have to tell him again. And all the rest of that weekend, I mean, and the rest of like the next few months... He's asking every 20 minutes, where's the mother? What's she doing? At her funeral, he's asking, where's the mother, whatever. Well, he never quite understands. Well, eventually we had to write a note. We had to write a note saying that she'd passed away. And even that, I mean, I think that isn't funny, but it does does remind me of something comedy. So I'm going to tell the comedy version of that now, which is a friend of mine had, uh, I think his grandma had dementia, and she used to get up every day uh, and go and call her dog who was dead. And every day she would go out and eventually someone would have to come back and bring her back and whatever and tell her that the dog was dead. And eventually they put a big sign up in her bedroom <laughs> saying the dog is dead. Right? And we did have to do something similar with my dad. We had to leave him a note telling her that my mum had passed away and this is what happened or whatever. And now he doesn't ask anymore. And I would say he's sort of assimilated the information, but actually it's very hard to tell. There's a sort of twilight world in which memory exists at the stage my dad is at now where he kind of knows stuff, but if you actually asked him, I wouldn't be able to tell you what mm-hmm. he would say. Mm-hmm. He would know if I showed him a picture, oh, that's my wife, but whether or not he would be able to say that she's alive or not now, I don't know. Mm. Well, why, I think this only happened once, but one couple who knew my mother got very upset with the story I told, it even came to, I think the it was... The story a, you told about your mum having an affair with your English teacher. Well, yeah, but then, and, you know, the whole thing, really, right. the whole thing. Um, and they came to the Brisbane Literary Festival where they lived and they, they kind of asked me angry questions from the front row. Really? Did, did anyone, I mean, you know, I know you talked about your brothers, did, did anyone else thought you had overstepped the line in quoting the letters and... Um, no, although, well, what, uh, some people came forward and I found out more things. So one of the things about doing a show publicly, I did the show twice in the West End in London, is that, because it's real, people who I didn't know about will come forward and tell you things. So a guy stood up in the show and read a letter. Uh, He said, do you mind if I read this letter? And he had lodged with my grandparents just after the war and he had known my mum as a baby. And in his letters home, he said, I can hear little from it saying her prayers. And I'd never heard my mum called that. In the wild, it was kind of a sort of an amazing moment for me. One person, one person, I don't know his name, I can't remember him, he wrote to me on Twitter and said, I knew your mum and I knew the golfing memorabilia salesman and (laughs) and you refer to him, this was his big problem, you refer to him as a golfing memorabilia salesman. He was a collector. It's quite a different (laughs) thing. And he was kind of furious about that. I don't know why. Did she she leave uh, any collection? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. We've sold quite a lot of it now uh, because neither me nor my brother are very interested in golf. Uh, So we have some, yeah. My mum was a big deal in the golfing memorabilia (laughs) world, although she was latterly thrown out of the golfing memorabilia society of Great Britain for reasons that I, I might get sued if I go into, but they involve her affair with the golfing memorabilia man. 
Which I was going to say his name. His name is David White. Which went um, on for 20 years, didn't it? Uh, well, that's an interesting thing. In the, According to my mum, it went on for the rest of her life. And she was still, as I quote in the show, writing erotic emails to him the, the year before she died. Uh, whether he would agree that it went on for quite so long, I'm not entirely sure. David Bedell is here. The show's called My Family, Not the Sitcom. Can we just take a minute or two to talk about this other career you've got, which is as a children's writer? You started off with adult books, but more recently it's been children's books. It's yeah. sold over a million of them. The latest is called Head Kid, and it's again, I used the word before about your mum, exuberant. You write very exuberant prose for kids. Yeah, well, I started writing for kids about four or five this years ago. This is a ago. better use of exuberance. <laughs> Possibly. It's a different use use of exuberance. I should say, for anyone who does read my... Or anyone who's got kids and has bought those for their children, don't get mixed up. Don't bring your nine-year-old to my family, not the sitcom. I know it says family in it. It's not a family show. It's for over 16s. But I I just started... There's the occasional use of a word even worse than bollocks. (laughs) Yes, there is an occasional use of worse words and there's occasional descriptions of my mother's sex life that children don't want to hear. I didn't want to hear them when I was young. But anyway, uh, I... I started writing just because I had an idea, which was my son, Ezra, who was eight at the time, said to me, Dad, why doesn't Harry Potter run away from the Dursleys, who your listeners and you may Uh know is a horrible muggle family Uh that Harry Potter has to live with when he's not at Hogwarts? He says, why doesn't he run away from them? and try and find some better parents. Yeah. Which I always thought was kind of an interesting kid's question, in that kids thought, well, if you don't like your parents, just run away and find some better Get ones. Get a new don't, set. Don't yeah. go to social services. So I thought up the idea of a world... It gave me an idea straight away, a world in which children can choose their own parents. So I wrote a story called The Parent Agency, which is about a kid called Barry, who in his own real life is kind of annoyed with his parents in a very normal way, wishes for better parents, goes through his bedroom wall, and it's a world run by kids in which you basically go to this agency and they show you rich parents or celebrity parents or whatever, and you try them out and then you choose a couple. My own desire to write this probably did come a little bit from having very, very idiosyncratic and strange parents, because I do remember when I was a kid a little bit thinking, oh, yeah, my mate Richard or whatever, he seems to live in a house where they're kind of normal. Hmm. I wonder what that would be like. Um, so but I if you'd have ever walked into that house... Yeah, well, I probably wouldn't have liked yeah. it. No, I, d- I doubt I would have liked it. And in fact, the, the... But you'd have discovered that they were as odd as yours in some well, way. That's yeah. true. I would have found that true. Well, the grass is... In a way, the grass... The story is not that the grass is green. The grass is the same wherever you go in different ways, but it's basically the same. But I've so that I wrote that it sold a lot of copies, and I've written a movie now of the parent agency, and that did make me think, oh, I should write more of these. And the interesting thing I think about the way that my brain works is, on the one hand, I desperately want to tell the truth in every detail about my own life. On the other hand, I want to make up these incredibly wild, fantastic stories that are not based at all in truth. I mean, they might have, the characters might be a bit, but they're really like high concept, magical stories. And I don't know why that is. Can I mention this before we end? Yeah. This is Three Lions. Do which, people know yeah. that? Yeah, they know I'm, what sure, it is I'm sure they do. Yeah. This is the. Because I don't the, understand, like, what football. The unofficial English soccer anthem, yeah. really, written by you and Frank Skinner, the words, and the music of... Lightning Seeds yeah, wrote ex- the music, yeah. Exactly, and increasingly used recently, you know, in the World Cup. Well, in the World Cup, I don't know if people know this here, but uh, that song, which is the sort of unofficial anthem of the England football team, I'm going to say football rather than soccer, mm. uh, it got a massive re-outing uh, this year because when England did well in the World Cup, 
people started singing it and playing it again. And for the first time as well, it was really on social media. So it really got incredible momentum. And the next thing I knew, because we got to the semi-final, the Coldstream Guards were doing a version of it outside Buckingham Palace. And Prince William was saying, football's coming home, uh, as his message to the England team or whatever. So it felt... I I, I did notice that the lyrics still say it's coming home after 30 years. That's a little bit of an underestimate. It is an underestimate. 50 years might have been better. redo the numbers every single time. I think you could fail to win the World Cup. You could re-release it every four years. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to do that. I mean, it's our version of all those Christmas songs, isn't it? Except it's every four years. Uh, But, I mean, it also doesn't scan to do 52 years of Hurt. Yeah. So we always go... I stick with 30 years of Hurt, even as you say, the number is infinitely increasing. That's... uh, 30 years is enough to cope with, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, On the text, saw David Baddiel's show in London last year. Absolutely brilliant. Tears, laughter, so moving... Loved it, says Kate and Bondi. Oh, that's very nice. That's a good review, isn't it? Yeah, no, that is really nice, Kate. Thank you very much for seeing it in London. I mean, it is a show that people do seem to connect to and they laugh and then they sort of cry and whatever. So I'm really touched by how much people have loved this show. Well, families are complex, aren't they? Families are complex. And when you talk about your family, you talk about all our families. Well, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Hey, thanks so much for coming in. What fun. I'm sorry I used a swear word. I know, it was so terrible, wasn't it? (laughs) We sometimes we were only only the other week we were singing Hitler had, only had one ball on this very show because Himmler had two and very small and Goebbels had no balls at all. You see, it's only because my mother escaped the Nazism that we're able to do that whole bit <laughs> exactly <laughs> to cheer on that song. Yeah, the brilliant David Badil. You listen to a TGIF special ahead of its glorious return on your podcast and on your radio next week. Meanwhile, comic Sarah Millican called into Drive from the UK to talk about her show, Control Enthusiast, and how comedy changed her life. Sarah, hello. Hello, how are you? Good. It must be the middle of the night where you are. It is. It's um, 5 to 2am. <laughs> I'm up at this time. I've been at work. This is what time I'd normally be going to bed. Are you insane? No, I'm just. this is my body clock. You go to bed at, what, 2 in the morning usually? Yeah, 2 or 3. But it's because I finish work at sort of 10pm and then we usually travel for a couple of hours. What's your wind-down routine? Um, I will... Well, I, we've got a dog and the dog goes out very late at night because he has a comedian body clock, thankfully. We managed to train him. So he gets up at 10am and goes to bed at 2am, the same as we do. So usually, my husband actually just walks in while I, I was on another call. So normally we take the dog out at this time of night. And it's quite weird because I think if anybody happened to be driving along, it must look really odd for people to be walking their dog at 2 in the morning. It must look like he's a really, really aggressive dog because I think they're the only dogs that people walk in the night on base. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a comedian too, of course. So you, you, the whole household is on this body clock. Yeah, we're all, we're all on a comic body clock. Well, this is terrible though because you you, you famously said you don't want children, but with that sort of body clock, you're about the only people in the world who could have children without trouble. <laughs> like I wouldn't even notice. <laughs> you're already getting out. You know, you're already up six times in the middle of the night, so it's fine. What time? Yeah, but what time? What time do kids get up there? Yeah. Let me ask you one of the great mysteries of, of Sarah Millican, having watched you for for years, and you can see if you can solve it for me. I don't understand how, since the content of the shows is often how gloriously unglamorous the human body is, how gloriously unruly the human body is and and, and life generally, and yet the shows are somehow very life-affirming. How can those two things happen at the same time? Well, that's very easy. I'm surprised you haven't picked up on this, Richard. Come on. Yes, keep up, dear. Keep up, exactly. Because we're all in the same boat, that's why. There's nothing more life-affirming than finding out that uh, your bodily functions or your sort of 
flaws are the same as other people's flaws. And I think it's kind of reciprocal. So when I say something that I feel, you know, is just me, and then the audience laughs, cause in, in how they laugh is because they're saying, oh, no, that's not just you, that's me as well. And then I feel that warmth back at me. So you, the audience make me feel normal while I'm making them feel normal. And everybody goes home happy. And that's why it's life-affirming, because... We all just want to know that we're all normal, and we sort of all aren't normal, but in a lovely way. We've all got these unruly bodies. Oh, completely. I went to um, a friend of mine's recently, she said, come round and I'll cook all your favourite food. And I thought, what a lovely thing to do for somebody. So, of course, I went round and we had a lovely time. She cooked all my favourite food, as promised. And then about three hours later, we're sitting on the sofa, and out of nowhere, she just went, I don't think my lady parts look like other girls' lady parts. <laughs> whole night had been a ploy. Come and look at me funny. Oh. I said, I'm not looking at it. I'm not looking at it. But if you draw it on a bit of paper, I'll have a look at that. Leggings worn two days running that smell of wee. Personally, I haven't done that. No, but I think if you were, if you were the kind of person who wears leggings, then you, you <laughs> would do that. What men do is socks. Men sniff socks to see if they've been on or not. Mm. see if they've got another day in them. Mm, that's right. So it's different items of clothing. Certainly, certainly uh, I think men believe that clothes don't need to be washed. They just need to be rested. <laughs> rested is good. My husband has sort of what we call dinner medals, where he likes to look and, and see. It's like a little diary of what he's had for his dinner for the last few days, all down his shirt. And he thinks, that, he thinks that's totally fine. And what we've got is... Um, you put it in the washing basket and then I wash the clothes because they have all of our individual chores like most families and couples do and, and I do the washing and then I hang his shirt up on a hat stand so that they don't need ironing because we don't do ironing in our house. And he said the other day, he said, is that a clean shirt? And he said, yeah, I got it off the shirt tree. And I was like, I'm sorry, you got it off the what? <laughs> and he calls it the shirt tree because they magically go from the washing basket to the shirt tree. And uh, and if he can leave all that dinner on for four days running, that's dessert for the for day five, isn't it? Exactly. And you see, this is why the dog seems to like him more than me because he always <laughs> smells a bit like gravy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Sarah Milliken is here. Her show is called Control Enthusiast. Is it, is it hard being that honest on stage about, well, everything from irritable bowel syndrome on, really? Yeah, I don't think so. The, the only scary times are when you do new material. So you're trying out stuff that you don't know if everybody else is the same. And sometimes you'll say something, you'll say, this is, we're all like this, aren't we? And the audience say, yes, we are. And sometimes you say, well, like this, aren't we? And they say, no, that's just you. And that is mortifying. And they're the ones that you don't do those bits anymore. You don't do, you don't, they never progress to being in a show. Yeah. So by the time you get the show up and running, you've had the audiences sort of, they've cleared it. They've said, yeah, don't worry, this is universal, crack on, flower. And so you're fine, you're fine after that. But the, the early stages are quite scary when you're, Saying something on stage for the first time ever, that's always quite intimidating, but also exhilarating because when it does work, it works really well, but when it doesn't work, it makes you want to cry in a corner. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is hilarious, that idea that you go on. And, I mean, having had, uh, having had a tradition of saying, I do this, this terribly embarrassing little tiny thing, and having 5,000 people say, we do too, in this great affirming way, it must be so weird when you do exactly that and the whole audience go, uh, uh, uh. 
That's just you, yeah, Sarah. You don't do that in front of 5,000 people. You do that in front of 25. <laughs> and only those 25 people have got a terrible story to tell their friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you going to tell me one of the things you've discovered is not universal and it's just you? Oh, no, I've, I've blanked them off of my mind. <laughs> as soon as, no, I write them down, I try them out, and as soon as they don't work, I, they disappear from my mind. Oh, no, I couldn't. And I would never share anything like that with you. I couldn't. So I've been touring since January, and I've been writing this show for two years before that. So the very early stages are years and years ago, uh-huh. and I'm now starting to write the early stages of the next show because you find once you're on tour and you're, the show is working and you're happy with where it's at, you start having funny ideas. And I am really brutally cautious about putting new stuff in, and I just keep that stuff back and out. Then by the time the tour ends, I've usually got a bit towards the next one, mm-hmm. which is my kind of... I was always quite good at school projects, and I just see this as another school project. No, I think you can trust us. You can try out new material... And- and all of Sydney will stay stum. The bits that don't work will just be between you and us, okay? God, I'm so glad. <laughs> We're a long way down, down under. We won't tell anyone. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, it's, it's so far away that you would... It, well, by the time they got all of back here, it would be like Chinese whispers anyway. I've got a boyfriend at the moment, and sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not. And to be honest, I prefer it when he's not. <laughs> Sex is a lot quicker. Because I don't bother with foreplay. And if ever I miss him, I just do a big loud fart, and it's like he was there. When I think of you, um, I often hear a little kind of chime across the decades from, from Victoria Wood. Is she one of your main inspirations, and, and if not, who is? Yeah, Victoria Wood, certainly. She was somebody I watched as a kid. Just an incredibly funny person on the telly. Not, not singled out as a woman, not, not special because she was a woman, just an incredibly funny person with very funny bones. And then kind of more standardly, because she obviously she was, I never saw her live, I only saw her on the telly. Um, more sort of kind of Jenny Clay and uh, Joe Brand and people like that. People who absolutely paved the way. The people who, who stood on the stage as a woman and were heckled because they were a woman, because the audience weren't used to seeing women. Thankfully now, there are women everywhere. We're literally everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you turn. And there's so many female comics. And especially, I mean, Australia is, is full of female comics. There's so many great comics that happen to be women there. Exactly, including our own Wendy Harmer, who is, you know, fantastic and, and led the way in exactly that way. Joe Brand is so fearless, isn't she? She's incredible. She's such an amazing woman. She really is. I actually have teenage nephews, and one of them always has a sign on his door saying, keep out, like you're going in there without a (laughs) flamethrower. Lend me my crampons, dear. I'm just popping in to tackle Tissue Mountain. Uh, Anomaly, and she's just she's just written a book, uh, sort of advice for women, and I'm just kind of inhaling it because it's the sort of thing I think. God, I feel like women should be handed this. She's such an incredible woman. No, I, I absolutely adore her. She came to my show when I was in London, and my support act uh, Sally, who was brilliant, said, "Nothing can hurt us because Joe Brown's in the room." <laughs> <laughs> and it felt like we had the Wizard of Oz right there with us. Sarah Milliken is here. You, you mentioned Joe's book. You published your own last year called How to Be a Champion. It it, it tells this story about when you're 29 years old and everything falls apart for you. You're not a comic at this stage. You're working in a job centre. Your marriage has ended. Can you paint a little picture of of you then and how you you found writing and comedy as the answer? It's interesting when people sort of hit rock bottom, which I consider I did, um, people pull themselves out of it in different ways. And some people 
take a drink and, and, and get drunk all the time and some people sleep around and, and I am not really prone to either of those things and instead I chose to talk about it in front of strangers. I'd written before, I'd written sort of film reviews and I'd written sort of articles and things but I'd never performed before, not since sort of, you know, in the nativity of school. And while I was going through my divorce, I had these days where I felt like I could do nothing. And then days when I felt like I could do anything. Like, if you make me climb a mountain, I can absolutely do it. And on those Shira days, as I call them, these days where I felt pretty invincible, I signed up to a course for people who'd written but never performed. And I went along to the course and I met a very uh, good friend of mine, who is a good friend now, who was one of the course, who just talked us through how to stand, how to hold the microphone, all the very kind of mechanical side of, of stand-up. And this was just me reading a monologue that I'd written, which was at times quite sad and at times quite funny in front of an audience. And then six months later, I contacted her and said, I think I want to try doing stand-up. And she said, I know, she'd been waiting for six months for the phone call. And she got me my very first gig. And I just inhaled it from then on. I was so obsessed with comedy and it just felt like every time I was with comedians I felt like I could be properly me for the first time in a long time and I took advice from people I thought were brilliant and wrote as much as I could and tried everything out and gigged as much as I could. The same as anybody trying to learn a new thing, just did it as much as I possibly could and just felt, even though he, my ex-husband didn't love me anymore, and there was this massive gulf in my in my heart where this love had been and had gone, all of a sudden these complete strangers just laughed at me, and it's like, it laughed at me in a positive way, that sounded really bad. Um, oh, and, and, laughed, he, at, and he, laughed at him a bit too, because he was the subject yeah. of the comedy in that first yeah, show. More, more about my dealing with, with that rather than him directly. I never sort of talked about him directly. And, and, but, but dealing with hard things in a crowd and people identifying with it and appreciating it and saying that they've been there too is so cathartic. I think in the first, I would say the first 18 months, it, it was just me healing and lo- like loving what I was doing, but it was just learning how to become a new version of myself. And I say a little bit like Doctor Who. Like I just am a newer version of what I was and a much more confident version and that took ages because, I mean, confidence is still often a mystery to me but the fact that I now get on a stage and talk about pretty much whatever I like as long as it's funny and the audiences come back and come back is just ridiculous. It feels ridiculous. It's quite overwhelming. Sometimes I walk out on the stage and there's 2,000 people who've chosen me for their night's entertainment and that to me is so flattering yet ridiculous that it's thrilling and to think that if I hadn't hit that rock bottom, if I hadn't had that divorce, if he hadn't said, you don't don't want this anymore, none of this would have happened. None of it would have happened. And I always think your whole life is just about how you handle things. I don't think it matters what happens to you, but if you learn from this thing and if you think, how am I going to make this better? This is awful. I need to make this better. And that's kind of my approach to life, I suppose. So you thank the universe for the pain of that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess there would have been pain in, in different forms if that hadn't happened, but if I was still together with him, there's no way I'd be talking to you now. I needed to hit the bottom before I bounced back up, and I just happened to bounce further up than I was before, I think. Let's finish with that idea of the audience. You know, that is the incredible thing about comedy, is is the intimacy, especially of your material, Sarah, the intimacy of you sharing these very kind of hidden things with all these people who understand that you've seen into their bathrooms, their bedrooms, their lives, their whatever, and then yeah. giving you back this this gift of acceptance, I suppose, of mutual acceptance. Yeah, and I think there's something very empowering about talking about things that people don't talk about, and but that we all experience. And I feel it from the audience. I feel the men and the women in the room just kind of 
thinking, oh, God, you know, somebody's talking about a thing that... And it's not... I'm not breaking any new ground. I'm just talking about things that are life, that are all of our lives. So I think the sharing of it makes me feel normal, but also makes the audience feel normal. And we all feel like we're in the same boat and we're all just kind of struggling along how we do. And there are blips and we deal with them and there's problems and there's silly things and there's ageing and there's all the things that come with getting older. And, and I just think sharing it makes it much less scary. Mm. I can see in the corner of the bedroom there the dog is looking very sleepy. I think he needs to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell. I can tell you're right for another hour, but I'm thinking of the dog. <laughs> I know. Talking to you, I'm all wired now. I'm going to need to wind down from this as well. But it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank God it's... Brilliant Sarah Millican on this Thank God It's Friday special. Let's introduce the third of our comics. Bill Bailey, when he was last in Sydney, dropped into the Drive studios and gave me his unique insight into everything from bird watching to Brexit. Bill Bailey is back in town, no doubt escaping a Britain locked in an existential crisis about the nature of the place. Bill, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, is there a... Is there a... <laughs> it's quite apocalyptic the way you're describing well, Britain right now. Yeah. It's an existential crisis right there. Uh, you know, wh- who are we? Are we part of Europe? Were we ever part of Europe? You know, is this physical separation sort of embedded in the national psyche? Uh, are we, have we had enough of it? Um, you know, the country's divided. It's divided mm-hmm. parties, you know, friends, families. It's, Everyone. Uh, I mean, I was referring, I suppose, mm-hmm. to that famous or infamous uh, headline. I don't know if it ever actually existed, but it's said to have existed in the Daily Mail or something like that. Fog in channel, continent isolated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's about, that's about right. Well, yeah, whether the fog's real or not, that's the other thing. But, yeah, intellectual fog, maybe. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I suppose it comes down to this. Is, is there a sort of – is there such a, such a thing as, as Englishness or, 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 or British character? You know, I think there is, um, and I think that uh, it is has always been characterised by a kind of um, – uh, you know, the, the the old cliches are true. The stiff upper lip, the getting on with it, the sort of shrug of the shoulders and come on, let's just get a, a sort of practicality, a utilitarianism, uh, which is, it, it come into question. You know, like I, I read all the press about Brexit around the world and it's like we've had some kind of fever uh, and we're behaving out of character. All the reports are the same, like, what happened to Britain? What happened to sensible Britain? You know, just take just very normal, sensitive, don't make any rash decisions. This seems to be out of character. It's out of our national character. And uh, it's it's certainly... It, but the thing is, to understand it is it goes back many decades. You know, this, this sense of um, grievance against Europe, which has been fanned by the kind of... The, the you know the egregious gadflies who the sort of commentators who like to use this you know the stoke this sort of anti-European feeling as it sort of promotes their own careers mm-hmm. and that's really where you have this it's a, I mean, it's a kind of irresponsibility but there there is a sense of 
a, 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 almost like a we've you know taken leave of our senses. Britain is not meant to be like this. We're not meant to be a divided <laughs> nation. We're and you're meant, me- and like, you're meant to be you sort know. of pragmatic and self-interested, yeah. I suppose. And absolutely, you know, Britain is supposed to be the sensible. But now it's like, you know. They talk about Brexit as a divorce, and that's quite a good analogy, though. But if you spin it around, it's like, you know, if you say, you, you know, let's let's dot the sexual I's and cross the T's here, a heterosexual marriage, say, the woman in this situation would be the European Union with the house and the kids and all the money. <laughs> and Britain is the bloke on his own in a car, <laughs> drunk, writing his CV out on a pizza box. You know, this is not... This is this is not how I thought Britain was going to be. Well, at least in a divorce, you can kind of guess what the outcome will be. Everyone seems yeah. to be so uncertain what the outcome will be, either on paper or in practice. Yeah, that's right, and uh, and that's what's the. I think. I mean, you know, the the practical reality of this is that, as you know, business hates uncertainty, and that's what's caused real problems already never mind the fact we haven't left or we know the terms we don't know but the fact the mere fact the potential the possibility of leaving without a deal has has caused chaos you know companies are leaving relocating to europe um you know the 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 pantomime toff of jacob reese mogg i mean what a what a hypocrite here's a man who's bleating on about the fact that this we need to have a clean break from brexit and that's what we need for britain and he's moved all his his hedge funds to Dublin, which is a, <laughs> a European Union nation. You hypocrite! So you know, uh, I I don't know. Those, I, I those think, top hats are very expensive, you know. Ah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You got it. You got exactly. The maintenance alone yeah. is uh, costs a fortune. There was a, there was a fantastic picture of, of him with his, uh, I guess, ten year old son the other day. The ten year old oh. son is dressed is exactly like his exactly dad. Exactly the same. Yeah. Mini me. Uh, Sixtus, I think he's called. Of course, of course he is. <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. So it's a very strange time. If it's an existential crisis, some people say the existential crisis begins you know, in 1945 or at least 1960s, I suppose, when yeah. you know the empire is really falling apart. Do you hold with that or, or do you think that's, you know, that the, the people have long ago forgotten about the moment where England was or Britain was so powerful? Uh, I, no, do you know what? I don't think that we have. I think there's a lingering nostalgia for the way that we were, you know. And, uh, and honestly, um, there's, a, there's a sort of a, there was a, I read a great article about the fact that, the, you know, the Queen is, <laughs> you know, still, the Queen has been around since this time. She, we've always had the, we've, you know, she's been there the whole time and she represents the link, almost the last link to empire. And there's a there's going to be an even more of a crisis um, when she's gone because this is sort of a, an age of deference, an age of there's such a deference to to the toffs, to the poshos in Britain. It's it's extraordinary, you know, complete sort of uh, uh, charlatans, utter charlatans like Boris Johnson and Rhys Mogg are given oh, bewildering amounts of deference because, you know, they talk in a nice way and, mm-hmm. you know, throw the odd Latin reference in. We are sort of still beholden to that. We're well, still in that kind of that mode of thinking. Pe- I don't people quite, say it's am- Australians yeah. who go over and work in, you know, I don't know, theatre and film and TV, and uh, I, I, I assume this is the same in science and everything else. They say it's amazing how many people who are in positions of power talk like that, who, who essentially yeah. come from Eton or similar. That's right, and and that's 
it's, it's still a big problem, you know, in terms of moving the country on a little bit. You know, that you look at the the conservative front bench. They're all so from public schools, from a tiny sort of pool of people from the same gene pool. Probably they're all probably related. They're all from the same <laughs> sort of aristocratic sort of you know moat. And this is a, a huge, a huge problem in terms of moving on, getting people engaged in politics. You know, it's and that's why these people like the Mogs and the Johnsons, all that, who talk a good game, get away with so much because we are sort of almost conditioned to give much more, you know, give them deference, give them the sort of, well, you know, they sound like mm-hmm. they're talking posh. They seem to know what they're talking about. Uh, and we're, we're sort, of, sort of stymied. We're kind of hidebound by this tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's be, I think what this Brexit has done is revealed a deeper rift that we ever, than, than we ever thought because it's, it's been going for years. This is not just a recent thing. This is decades, decades of, of slow, drip, drip, yeah, yeah. anti-Europe. They'll, um, they'll take thing. away your Cumberland sausages. Yeah, That's exactly. Yeah, yeah. Your bananas will be straightened and your, you know, your, pie, <laughs> your pasties will have mo- mozzarella in them. <laughs> you know, I predict, actually, though, Richard, uh, uh, a short-term boost in smuggling. Yeah. After yeah. if we crash out the, I've got a little place down in Devon. I'm thinking of turning it into a yeah. big smuggling clearinghouse. Yeah, smugglers you know. cave. You need a smugglers yeah. cave. You would fit. You'd you'd look good in a smugglers cave. I'm. I reckon I would. I've you'd, got. A, I've got a lot. Of, you'd look good in the in, in the sort of jaunty jaunty nautical cap. Yep. The striped the striped sort of shirt <laughs> of the smuggler. Is that the smuggler's garb? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Most of my clothes I could are smuggling clothes. <laughs> That's my look. Get, yeah, you, get, be... get yourself a hook hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The full a pirate. hook hand. <laughs> I'll be rowing whole hams. Look, I'll be rowing Palmer ham across. That's it. It won't be drugs. It'll be ham. Huh. Ham and cheap beer. Okay, and if you become a pirate, best of all, as a bird enthusiast, yes, on the shoulder. Absolutely. Huh. A bit, I mean, I've got the parrot already. I've got most of the equipment I need to be a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Bailey is here. The 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 enthusiasm for for birds and other animals is is notable in your mm-hmm. career. I'm going to share with you something from the Sydney Morning Herald because I thought, how can I excite Bill's interest in this yeah. radio interview? I thought this is this is the way to this man's All heart. Right. Okay, page seventeen tells the story of a owlet, a powerful owl owlet who was found injured on the ground in the Lane Cove National Park here in Sydney, Hmm. spotted, stranded on the ground. Uh, Vets came to its assistance, saw a bit of an injury, fixed up the injury, took it to Fitzroy Falls in the Southern Highlands, where at the Higher Ground Raptor Centre, a non-profit group of of whose existence I was ignorant until this point, he spends five days recovering at the centre, then is brought back to Lane Cove National Park and hoisted into the tree from which he fell. Question, of course... Will mum and dad accept him back and look after him? What do you think happens? Oof. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough... How old was this owl? That's the thing. That's the crucial thing. Was it fledged? Did it have wings? Mm. Or was it just a ball of fluff? Uh, recently fledged chick oh. is, is, well, all, is all the uh, story offers. If it's recently fledged, then it has a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
but if it's got, you know, if it's still like a, ball, a big ball of fluff, it might not make it. I know. Yeah. So do you want to hear what happens? Go on. Okay, they, they, uh, they, they, they put him on a discarded bread tray from a supermarket and hoisted mm-hmm. 20 metres up into the canopy yep. uh, at the point the bird is deemed ready for release. And so last Wednesday, as twilight arrived, the owlet was hoisted in her unassuming box into place. Mm-hmm. Before long, Mum was spotted flying to a nearby tree. And oh. soon after, Dad arrived, bearing dinner in the form of a dead possum. Oh, fantastic. Pretty touching, isn't it? That's beautiful. That's a love letter and a half. Yeah, that is wonderful. Well, that's, that's a proper owl release. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you were trying that's to a... show affection to your own children... Yeah. yeah. Dead possum uh, on the plate. A dead possum, there you go. I bring you this. <laughs> As but, a gift but, of my love. But, Dad, I wanted an iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, shut up and eat your possum. Eat your possum. Come on. I bloody chased that for a couple of hours. Yeah. Stalked it. One of, one of your early programs about animals was, was Wild Things, I Love yeah. You, and that was about all these British animals like the badgers, the owls yes. and the, the voles. So in some ways you're telling both sides of the story, getting to know the owls yeah. at the same time as you're getting to know their dinner. Yes, the snack. The vole is pretty... I would never be a vole. I, de- I never wouldn't come back as a vole. They're pretty much like the go-to snack of most most predators in Britain. The McDonald's you know, of the real world. I- exactly. The toasted cheese sandwich of the kestrel and the owl. There's nothing... There's no escaping them. I mean, I mean they, you know, they just... They've got no chance. Kestrels have got some sort of ultraviolet, like, vision. Uh, owls have got... Owls can hear... I mean, their hearing is extraordinary. I mean, they can hear, like, you know, a vole's heartbeat from, like, 100 yards away. A vole's got no chance. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I feel sorry for him, to mm-hmm. be honest. Uh, um, I mean, this, uh, the, the guy who rescued the little, the, the little fledgling I was telling you about, he says the yeah. same thing. He says they're the cutest animal in the world, but they're also, I forget his phrase, he says they're a, they're a bruising killing machine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> At the same they time. Are. Oh, they are ruthless. Um, and but you know, at the same time, they have a kind of a mythical status in all sorts of cultures, and uh, they—I don't know what it is about them. There's, you know, the, uh, there's a sort of, you know, there's, there's, you know, the wise owl. There's all this sort of, you know, the idea of the fact that they could. I think the stillness, the huge face, the eyes has given them a kind of more of a human aspect, which has sort of endeared mm. them or f- made them figures of fear over the years. The huge face, the big eyes, the figure of fear. Enough about Bill. Let's talk. <laughs> Bill Bailey is a British comedian. <laughs> Bill Bailey is a British comedian. Exactly right. You've made so many programs about animals. I mentioned the, the, the voles and the owls. Then there was yes. the orangutan program. There was a fantastic program which was following Lord, uh, you know, Lord Russell in... Uh, Alfred in, Wallace. Alfred yeah, Wallace right, yeah. in, in, in Indonesia and Malaysia yes. more recently, so our part of the world. But what do you learn about human behaviour from spending so much time in the wild looking at animals? Uh, well, I mean, if you, you know, that, just take that last example there, um, Wallace. I mean, he was, uh, a, I mean, he got into, you know, he was fascinated by the natural world through beetles, through the propen- through the, the sheer number, the, the profusion of nature. And uh, so that drew him to explore why there were so many species. And that then led him down the path towards... Uh, you know, questioning the received wisdom about how we got here, why, the, why, you know, and and then that led him independently of Darwin to the theory of natural selection, you know, evolution by natural selection, and so 
um, what and what he did was to travel around Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, Borneo and Singapore, and he collated enormous amounts of data and information. He was a, a, an obsessive um, notator of facts and figures, and he would collect specimens and measure them um, accurately, and then he would make extensive notes. But at the same time, he studied people. He was a great. He was just so curious about the indigenous people, and. Uh, I think what he, you know, he draws these amazing conclusions that were very far ahead of his time, and that he was saying, you know, he looked at the tribal structures of indigenous people and saying, you know, the, what we call civilized in our world, you know, referring to you know his home mm-hmm. back in Britain, he said is very much not. These people are equally, if not more so. You know, they lived much more in tune with nature. They took whatever they needed, they, they worked by the seasons, they didn't take any more than they needed. And so it was a, it's, it, he had a great richness and a great understanding of, of people. Mm. Which, which, which actually, which, which Darwin didn't actually, he, he, yeah. he saw the world much more in, in terms well, of the Europeans at the top and hierarchies down to, well, yes. d- down to uh, Australians actually. <laughs> Was the, was the bottom of the list. But anyway, that was Charles Darwin. But, yes. but Wallace, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, in the history of ideas that they come up with the ideas so, you know, almost simultaneously. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Darwin's um, was, a, a, you know, his, his revelationary moment came earlier, you know, his, in, but it was a private revelation, which he only, he sort of admitted it to some close friends and wrote about it in his personal journal and never really talked about it or aired it in public at all. I mean, a lot of people as- ascribe this to the fact that his wife was quite religious and he did it out of respect for her, but it's, it was more practical that, more about the science of it. He didn't want to ad- 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 you know, ascribe a theory or air a theory without um, you know, practical and masses of evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. He, was a, he was had a scientific mind. And Wallace uh, came up with this through the practical collecting of specimens his was one born out of you know the empirical evidence under his nose of a million insects yeah Mm. all of these different insects all of this profusion of nature where did this come from why why were there so many you know and there's this wonderful quote that jb haldane one of my favorite biologists you know he says um that you know when he talks about religion about god and why were there so many species and he said well if there is a god he had an inordinate fondness for beetles, <laughs> <laughs> which is which sort of a sort of that really was the essence of what Wallace was about. You know, how could there be all of this? This can't God can't have created each one of these individual beetles. There must be some other reason. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Bill Bill Bally is here. Do you have pets now? Do you have a dog and a cat, or, or yes. is it more the wild? The, the, the no, we've got a whole menagerie of animals. We started taking in um, you know the waifs and strays, and uh, me and my wife are now we have we're host to a whole menagerie of. Uh, uh, dogs, cats, birds, parrots, ducks, mm. chickens. Well, the, 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 the full Attenborough. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the full works. <laughs> I keep wondering. I, I come home and I don't know what's going to I hear these strange noises from the house. Eventually, this is, I just I said to my wife, one day I'll come home and there'll just be no furniture left in the house. It's just straw <laughs> on the ground. And we're just shuffling around eating pineapple out of a tin while strange creatures flit in and out of a twilight. Does she share your passion, or is she long suffering? No, no, she's uh, she's even more animal crazy than I am. So I guess we sort of <laughs> we found kindred spirits. <laughs> That's the thing on Tinder, is it? You just swipe, swipe, swipe. It's just a picture of an owl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this. Yeah. Like to see more of this. <laughs> 
interest, totally insane. Oh, good. Insane. Great. Oh, look, there's a beetle. Oh, this seems like the person for me. <laughs> it's been great talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this Thank God It's Friday special. Remember, next week, Thank God It's Friday, with our live studio audience back on your radio with Gene Kitson, James O'Loughlin and Kitty Flanagan. Until then, I'm Richard Glover, and thank God it's Friday! Friday!